Well, we just finished a two-part series on forgiveness. And if you weren't able to hear that, you can go back online and listen to those. There is somewhat of a foundation to what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, which is on heaven. We all have perspectives of heaven. And so today is an introduction to heaven, and you may be thoroughly disappointed because you're not going to learn much about heaven today, but you are going to learn about the necessity of heaven, which will make the rest of the series much more sense for you this morning. So in my perspective and from what I have seen, the modern Christian, unfortunately, ignores the past, especially when it comes to theology of the past. What was written, mistakes that were made, councils that were formed, creeds and confessions that were passed down are not read or even uh, uh, even glanced at. And so the errors of the past that wrecked the Christian world have come back to infect us, and in some cases, even worse than the first or second time that we have dealt with them in the church in the past. So the modern Christian is more concerned about what works today, how they can achieve success or progress is really what we hear and what we feel. Overcoming failures or self-improvement is the Christian mission. Success is only a few steps away, right? So dedication, discipline, focus, and a little bit of faith peppered in is the guaranteed formula to accomplish our spiritual goals. The Bible is just a means to an end, is what ends up happening in today's world. At the end is self-improvement, and that's the end. And the means are the instructions in the Bible. So the better I am, the more happy, wealthy, and healthy I will be. See, I already got an amen in there. Then a pandemic comes and decides to test our theology, and that it has done. Death, loss of income, depression, and anxiety. I have seen prosperity gospel ministries call the power of God down to stop COVID-19 and tell COVID-19 it shall not pass. I have to admit, I laughed out loud for a very long time when I watched that video. Obviously, God must have said no because it's still in existence today. Or maybe he just said no to their prayer because they didn't know what they were praying. When your life is turned over and you find yourself on the side of the road and you no longer are flying at 70 miles an hour, succeeding in life, the wreckage becomes devastating. The first question everyone asks is this, how could God allow this to happen to me or to this person that I love? We quickly take into account all that we have done for him how successful we have been, and yet it wasn't enough to protect us from whatever calamity we find ourselves in. I guess I should have had more faith. I've given more time, money, and the list can go on. Millions of Christians have their faith wrecked every day because life came crashing down with the announcement of cancer or death of a child or loss of a 30-year career and a failed marriage or unfaithfulness in a marriage. Thoughts of hatred, which I have done counseling with people, and I finally get them to admit that they do have thoughts of hatred toward God. It seeps into their hearts and their minds. And suicide doesn't seem so scary when the circumstances are hard enough. 
Self-medication often is how we end up dealing with this pain because it seems overbearing because it's not matching to what we've been told should be happening. So instead of, instead of finding help, we pretend all is well. We have all done this. We show up to church with the smile on our face because we don't want anybody else to think we don't have it together. We call tragedy a moment of learning. We look past the reality of hope and we look for a miracle. We assume God will always provide relief and make and make this interaction with him have some kind of a positive outlook now. It is safe to say we don't look at reality in the face. We live in this fantasy world we've created. When our fantasy world never really reaches its reality, the weight becomes almost unbearable. This is why theology matters. What you believe about God and His Word actually affects the way in which you live life. So how you understand God's Word can either enslave you or it can set you free. And I will say, many Christians walk around with no rest, feeling weight and enslaved. Almost 500 years ago, Martin Luther dusted off a theology that is as old as the mountains. It's not his theology. He just rediscovered it. It was lost because it was covered up by human wisdom, which we are doing again today. Luther put this theology into two helpful categories and explanations for us to understand. He called them the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. There's a late great Lutheran theologian by the name of Gerhard Forty, and he put it this way of describing a theology of glory, that which where the human, we, find glory in our actions. He says this, a theology of glory operates on the assumption that we need, what we need is optimistic encouragement, some flattery, some positive thinking, some support to build our self-esteem. Theologically speaking, it operates on the assumption that we are not seriously addicted to sin and that our improvement is both necessary and possible. We need a little boost in our desire to do good works, but the hallmark of theology of glory is that it will always consider grace as something of a supplement to whatever it is left of the human will and power. That's a as a quick explanation of theology of glory. I think this perfectly describes our modern day context. We, uh, what was exposed 500 years ago is now once again, pardon the pun, plaguing Christianity. We have a different label for the theology of glory today. We kind of call it this, um, what we call it is prosperity gospel. The good news is that you can improve your life with a little bit of help from God. That's another way of saying the theology of glory. Luther contrasted this from Scripture, what he called the theology of cross. He's just using Paul's language. Luther was just giving the church what Paul wrote, and he said, hey, look what I found, that somehow we've covered up with all of these man-made religions. So just write some of these down. You can look at them later. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read them to you. Romans 7.18 says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. You know when Paul wrote that? As a believer. He's describing himself as a Christian. For I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. He's saying, I don't need a little bit of help. I need all the help. Second Corinthians 12, 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, this thorn in the flesh that God gave him, that it should leave me. But he said to me, this is Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the complete opposite of the theology of glory. But we are these strong, capable people that just need a little help, just need a little guidance. And Paul is saying, I can't do anything unless it's for the grace of God. So the theology of glory tells us we should see progress and a decrease in suffering and an increase in prosperity. The more we love and obey God and the Bible, these will be true about our lives. But Paul says the exact opposite. Philippians 1.29, he says this, For it has been granted to you, gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, this is an amazing gift, right? We have eternal life with God. This is a wonderful gift. And then he says, but also to suffer for his sake. He says, your journey will begin with a gift and it will continue with suffering. That does not sound like the theology of glory we hear from our culture. It sounds the exact opposite. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when he when his glory is revealed the new testament apostles did not see the christian life as this onward and upward progress of improvement and getting better and sin decreasing and holiness increasing they saw their lives as failures constantly and that they have been called to suffering, not the sense of a victorious Christian life where they're constantly overseeing or uh, overcoming sin. So Paul says the Christian life is actually characterized by the nature of the cross. The cross is the opposite of glory. It is the humiliation and shame. There's nothing glorious about the cross at all. So when God looks at your good works that which you want to be prideful of and say, look, God, shouldn't you be excited about what I'm doing? He turns to the cross and says, that is where they belong. Your good works belong on the cross because they're not perfect, and they're not perfect, they're offensive. I know this sounds strange, but according to what we know of the New Testament, your good works never impress God. This is why you are told to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus not your own righteousness, not your own good works. So those who hold tightly to the cross end up embracing their weakness, not their potential for progress. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. If I were to put it in the vernacular terms, and kids, I can say this because I'm quoting the Bible, but you can't say it at home. It's stupid. For the word of the, for the word of the cross is stupid to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. The world hears you're weak. There's nothing you can do about it. 
Your faith will not overcome your cancer. Your faith will not overcome your disability. But the one thing it will do is save you from your condemnation and one day ultimately glorify you. Well, you will be in a new heavens and a new earth. And that sounds foolish to them. Why? Because they want to know how to have heaven now. We are impatient by nature. This is why things like microwaves and drive-through exist. Because we want it now. And when our text message won't send, because it's going up in the outer space and coming back down out of outer space, and it's like, why isn't this sending? We're so impatient. I think I need a new phone. The theology of glory tells us that we can be liberated from the curse of sin now. That's the lie of this theology. By discipline and some peppering of faith, heaven can be here on earth now. The theology of cross cuts to the heart of the matter. It goes against the nature of man. Those who are weak in the flesh understand the strength is not found in improvement, but it's found in the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So it is on the cross where we find forgiveness of our sins. We find a hope of a new life. And we understand that God sees us as good and righteous, but it's never our goodness. So when Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong, he's saying his strength comes from Christ and not ever from his own efforts. He looks outside of himself and anything he could ever perform, and he puts his faith in the power of Christ. So let me read you a longer passage. This is how Paul thinks about us. So if he was standing here today, This is what he would say to you and what he thinks of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, he says this, For consider your callings, brother. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. But God shows what was foolish in the world. No one likes to be called foolish. I've never found anybody who says, thanks for calling me foolish. God shows what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The theology of glory forces you to boast in yourself. Look what I have done. See how I have progressed. The cross comes in and says only one should be praised, and that is Christ, not us. So what Paul is giving us in this theology of the cross is opposite as it sounds. He gives us hope, not a list for self-improvement, but hope. So the greater the weakness we see and embrace, the more strength we can find to endure our current suffering that we're in. The harsh reality about this world is this. God is not removing sin nor the effects of sin until he returns. No matter how hard you try, sin will always eat this world away. Let's say we can solve the problem of hunger and cancer. Can we control the weather? 
We cannot. Can you control the effects of age? No. We try to cover up death all of the time. Many can go their entire life and never really see death in front of them. Death is this heavy reality we are not in control of, but yet we try and pretend that we are, and we hide it. We are all ticking time clocks with an expiration date that no one, no matter how healthy or wealthy or 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 uh, um, a healthy one may be, they cannot turn the clock back. What the gospel tells us is that what we do, what we do not overcome this world of pain. We go through it by faith. Everyone is trying to skirt pain in this life. And they all have the solution. And they blame God for the solution as if God's agenda is to make you happy on this earth and without pain and suffering. But this faith provides us a hope because it says I'm rescuing you from this world. I'm not rescuing you to stay in this world and somehow improve it. And that leads us to where we are this morning in Romans chapter 8. Are you nervous? That was my introduction. Don't worry, I only have two pages left. Romans 8, let me just read this entire context because I think it's helpful. Paul, just so you understand, Rome in about 10 years is going to experience some of the most atrocious persecution of Christians in the history of the world. Because we have small children here, I will not describe to you what they have done, but it is, it is, it is horrific to think about what Nero did to human beings as illustrations of, if you go against me, this is what will happen. So Paul They're already fighting a government that hates them. They're already feeling the pressures of if they're being told to to make sacrifices to their idols, and if they don't, then they will be persecuted for it. And then there's this 30 years of persecution, which we will get into later when we get into the book of Revelation. So Paul is writing to scared, weak Christians who are watching their government come upon them. They're watching their brothers and sisters go into prison. The man who was imprisoning people and killing them now writes this letter to these people and says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not talking about a militia. He's not talking about more faith. He's not talking about more obedience. We'll get you through this suffering. He's comparing it to what's to come. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's the solution. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of the sons. This is so hopeful and helpful. The redemption of our bodies. When does this happen? Come back next week. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For we hope, for who hopes for what? We, he sees. <laughs> Let me rephrase that for you. If you look at this current world and say, there's not much here to hope for, that's his point. 
No, there's not. But we, but if we hope for what we do not see, that which is to come, we have not seen it yet, we can wait for that patiently. We can wait for it. The greatest gift we can give anyone in this world is hope. Without hope, we have nothing to live for. Without hope, life for many becomes meaningless. I was having this conversation recently with my brother-in-law about how people who pursue hope in their wealth, in their health, or in their fame, and once they achieve it, and I've, I know people who are very famous and wealthy, and I know a lot of people who are very healthy, and yet they haven't fixed their problem, which is death is knocking at their door. They cannot escape it. They also cannot escape the death of those around them or the suffering and the pain that's around them. There's this illustration where these two men uh, are captured and they're thrown into, into this pit and they're going to live there. They're going to live in this prison for 10 years. And one man finds the news out that his wife and child has died when he goes in. And the second man is told that his wife and children are safe and are waiting for them, waiting for them for when he gets out. Well, as the 10 years goes by, as I'm sure you can understand, there's one man who has something to live for and the other has nothing to live for. And eventually, he, out of grief, dies. And the man that has something to wait for makes it through the 10 years. This is what Paul is getting at, is that there is a hope for you in the midst of this pit, in the midst of this mire and sickness and shame and horrendous life. It's not here that we're, it's when we get out of here is where our hope is placed. So there is, and I must admit, there is beauty and joy. And the Bible tells us that there's beauty and joy here on this earth. But the way that it describes it, it describes it like a postcard, an appetizer, a glimpse, a dark shadow of what is to come. So heaven is not foreign to what we experience here. But herein lies our problem. We are so focused on fixing our current world that we never take the time to listen to what the Father tells us about this world and the next world. Heaven is a myth for most because it's not necessary. If you can improve your circumstances here, then why do you need heaven? I can achieve all of my goals. As C.S. Lewis used to say, a child making mud pies, or mud pies on the side of the road when he could have the beach, but yet he doesn't know. Well, this is why going back to what's been written before helps us. In our confession that we hold to here as our church, the London Baptist Confession, this is our doctrinal statement. I would encourage you, if you haven't read it, these gems are hiding in there for you. And they're all numbered with verses so that you can go and read the verses. Let me read this to you. It's chapter 5.5. Underneath the providence of God, it says this. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows His children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for the former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependent on him 
to sustain them. To make them more cautious about future circumstances that may lead to sin and for others and just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and their good. The point of it is, God has never said, I will set you free from the effects and bondage of sin now. And when you forget that, he'll often let you wallow in it. He'll often let you feel the pressures and pain of it. So when you finally fail, you will then turn and depend upon him. Well, once you finally realize that there is no hope for this current world, guess what becomes a little bit more interesting for you? The next one. The next one does, especially for those who have been or close to their deathbed, no matter what their age is. The next life becomes very valuable to them. Heaven really wasn't that interesting to me until I lost my father. And when he died, it became extremely important to me. I wanted to know if, what, how, and why. What does it look like? And I was told all kinds of things. And so are you. We'll get into this next week. But if I were to take a survey of what you think of heaven, it would terrify me. I too wouldn't want to go to what you describe. It sounds horrible. It sounds like an operating room that has uh, elevator music playing. Doesn't sound glorious. It sounds clean, great, but that's about it. And yet the writers, Paul and John, when they talk about heaven, it's like, oh, oh, how do I describe this to you? This is why Revelation is so like bizarre. It's like, how do I, how do I put this into words? How do I let you see what I see? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to learn about this hope and how it is that the hope of heaven and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, by the way, uh, you aren't going to spend forever in heaven. Shocker, for those of you who didn't know that. That's <laughs> a temporary place. But we'd refer to it as heaven. How is it that our hope there affects what I do at my job and with my children and with my sin and with my sickness and with the sickness around us and the chaos around us? How does the hope of that is to come affect us now? We'll learn this next week.